I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe, Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European... Do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Hello Snowflakes and welcome back to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. That's people like me, Steve Anglesey. How are you doing? Well, I'm back after a week's break, which means that I managed to miss most of the Labour and Tory party conferences, something that I can highly recommend. I did see the leaders' speeches, though. I'll be discussing both of those and both conferences in a moment with the pollster and journalist Peter Kellner, who's talking about both parties quest for competence the quest for competence it sounds like a particularly bad star wars prequel doesn't it but what about those speeches well staying with the sci-fi theme i mean keir starmer's was a bit like that blade runner sequel from a few years ago 2049 it was called wasn't it overlong robotic some nice callbacks to something far better from many years before sort of blair runner really and Boris Johnson's was like Mel Brooks's Star Wars spoof. Incoherent nonsense for idiots from a comedian whose jokes aren't funny anymore. Not so much space balls as a load of balls from a waste of space. So Peter Kellner is coming up to discuss all of that. And then we'll put more putrid politicians and pompous pundits in the Hall of Shame. Putrid politicians and pompous pundits being two of the few things Britain doesn't have a shortage of right now. But first, some housekeeping. I'm delighted to say that I'm going to become the new editor of The New European. It's not a joke, it's true. What a job and what a time to do it. I don't think The New European has ever been more necessary than it is now. I'm looking forward to seeing my first issue as editor on the shelves in newsagents, supermarkets and garages soon if supermarkets and garages still exist by next week, of course. To be sure of getting a copy of the print edition, why not support The New European by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. While you're there, you can check out our amazing new website. And we've got an excellent new podcast that you can listen to after this one as well. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives tells the life story of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's really good. It's available wherever you got this podcast. So coming up in a moment, Peter Kellner. But before he joins us, what did you make of the two leaders' speeches we've heard in the last two weeks? Boris Johnson's speech then. Hans van Baalen called it a field day for fact-checkers. And Lindsay was another new European podcast listener who got in touch. She said, 
The theme of the speech was Build Back Blather. Ettoria McCarthy said the Latin Johnson news will really appeal to all these borrowed folks from the Red War. And Tim Bradford said the speech gave me the usual mix of weariness and anger. It made me simultaneously want to punch my own head and reform our outdated voting system. Wendy Ellis said Boris Johnson's speech was embarrassingly awful. Even some of those in the hall looked as if they wished they were anywhere else. Patty Fifi said Boris Johnson's speech was full of smirks and lies. Linda Thornley said it was full of waffle and lies. Lindsay Kirk said it was full of toxic hot air. Reuben Ames found it scary. He said it was all a laugh to the delegates. And Claire Waters said it made me alternate between anger, laughter and despair. Brian Wilkinson said Boris Johnson's new mantra is we must put right the mess we've made for years. And Martin Turner said it didn't really matter what Boris Johnson said in his speech because he'll deny ever saying any of it by the end of next week. But what about Labour? What did you lot think about Keir Starmer's speech? Arthur McCall said it's time to unite behind our elected leader. It amazes me that a lot of members would rather fight each other than fight the Tories. And Dieter Novak says Keir Starmer should stop being a Tory and actually put forward some socialist policies. So a bit of a difference of opinion there between Dieter and Arthur. Sue Finch thought Keir Starmer needs to stand squarely on rejoining the single market and the customs union. If not, why not? Millions are waiting to hear this from his lips. David White wants Keir Starmer to reconsider his thoughts about Scotland. And Arthur Smith mentions both those points. He says, the government have left so many open goals. Why are Labour not capitalising on these? Why are Labour ignoring Brexit as the root cause of the current chaos? When will Keir Starmer recognise the battle to keep Scotland in the union is lost and work with the Scots, not against them? Now, the award-winning journalist and pollster Peter Kelmer joins us. He's in the New European this week with a piece that focuses on the Conservative and Labour Party's eagerness to claim the crown of competence. Peter Kelmer, welcome back to the podcast. Great, Steve. Good to be here. Um, let's get to competence in, in a moment then. But but now we've heard the two leaders' speeches from the two conferences over this last fortnight. What, what did you take for them, from them? Neither is really going to break our assumptions as Starmer as a serious details man who can't inspire and Boris Johnson as a frivolous man who can't tell the truth, really. Yeah, I, I don't, in all honesty, think the party conferences told us anything we didn't already know or, or believe. That is... Anybody who's strongly pro-Labour will have reinforced uh, by Labour's conference last week and their dislike of the Conservatives will be reinforced by the Tory conference this week and vice versa. The main difference between the parties is that Keir Starmer is still to some extent on probation. He doesn't dominate uh, the Labour Party as completely as Boris Johnson dominates the Conservative Party. I think Keir Starmer did himself quite a lot of good last week um, in establishing more control over the party, but he's still got some way to go to dominate it as completely as Johnson dominates the Tories. And I mean, there were some interesting moments from Starmer, as you say. I mean, he, he said good things, I thought, about mental health and education. And he did manage to dial back, maybe with an assist from some of the hecklers, the, the image of Labour as a party of the extreme left. Oh, that's right. I don't think anybody uh, in their right minds would now say that Labour is a party of the far left in the way that it was when Jeremy Corbyn was, was leader. Plainly, a lot of people will still say that, and some of them may even think that. But that's always... Um, 
been the case. You know, you only got to look at America and family people in the Republican rights called Joe Biden a communist. Yeah. I mean, it's absurd, but that's what people say. But equally, um, I don't think anybody can now say that today's Tory party is a you know, small government, laissez-faire, you know, right-wing, low-tax party. Um, a combination of what's happened with the t- pandemic and the amount of public spending that's, that's, that's gone on, and now with the new tax being announced to help pay for health and social care, uh, we're heading for the highest tax as a percentage of national income um, in peacetime for, what, something like 70 years. Both parties, I think, have been, if one is trying to be dispassionate about it rather than partisan, both parties have shed the kind of ideological fervour that some of their own keenest supporters would like them to pursue. Now, I mean, the, the quest for competence is, is hardly the most inspiring slogan, isn't it? But it, it, is, it is the one that, that both parties are aiming for, as you say in this excellent piece that you've written for the New European this week. I mean, it's obvious when you think of the long years out of power for Labour after the winter of discontent and the Tories after Black Wednesday and then Labour again after the financial crisis. YouGov have been tracking competence for, for a couple of years now. What do... It's been a real roller coaster, hasn't it? What do what do what do ordinary voters say when when they ask whether Labour and the Conservatives are competent? I mean, you're right. It has been a roller coaster. You uh, got started their series just before Theresa May uh, stood down as as was turfed out as Prime Minister, and the Tory rating and the Labour rating were both in terrible shape. Boris Johnson took it briefly to positive territory. That is, more people said the Conservative Party were competent than incompetent. But then with the pandemic, that faded away. Keir Starmer uh, rescued Labour from the truly awful ratings at handled Jeremy Corbyn and was doing, he wasn't doing well, but he wasn't doing catastrophically about this time last year. But then again, in the last few months, it's drifted away. So we're now in the position where many, many more people say both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are incompetent rather than competent. And with the Conservatives, it's about two to one saying incompetent rather than competent. In the case of the Labour Party, it's about three to one. Yeah, these, are, these are big negative numbers. Yes. I mean, it, it really, that really is, is shocking, isn't it? I mean, there is, Starmer is, is quite a way ahead of his party, and then Johnson is viewed as more competent, sorry, less competent than, than, than Starmer, much less competent than Starmer. Is, is, that, is that unqualified good news for Starmer? Uh, it's good. It is good news that there's something in which he's clearly ahead of Boris Johnson. But mm. one's, got to, one's got to be careful. The first thing is a lot of people, more than a third, are yet to make up their mind about Kistama. I, I, I think his ratings, they're, they're not bad, but I'm not sure they're very firmly held um, views. Um, and he wouldn't take a lot to knock him down. Or for that matter, if he does really well, to push them up. I mean, there is there's a upside potential to having a soft rating as well as a downside um, potential. But I think the big thing is this, that although Kiyosama can say to his colleagues in the shadow cabinets or amongst Labour MPs that he's running ahead of the party and therefore they've got to, you know, they've got to stick with him rather than do anything else, nevertheless, when it comes to fighting the election, if a party has a toxic brand then it's very hard for the leader to win an election on that basis. You think back 
Well, those of us who are old enough think back to the winter of discontent, the late 1970s, uh, when James Callaghan, James Callaghan was the Labour Prime Minister. We had the winter of discontent just a few months before the 1979 election. And Labour's reputation was shot to pieces. But Jim Callaghan personally continued to do rather well. And they were in Thatcher went head to head in the 79 election campaign. Quite a few more people said they wanted Callaghan to be Prime Minister than Thatcher to be Prime Minister. But guess what? Thatcher won. And that started the you know, 18 years of Tory rule. So although people you know, rather liked Uncle Jim, in the end, they couldn't stomach the idea of the Labour Party continuing in government. So uh, Starmer's most urgent task is to detoxify his party. He started that process there's a lot further for him to go. It's quite difficult as well, isn't it, I, I, I think, for him, because clearly he's got to reintroduce himself to, to people as well, having, I think, probably sensibly tried to sit out a lot of, uh, a, a lot of the pandemic, uh, realising that there wasn't really much in it for him. How do these parties win this competence war at the next election then? You, you mentioned Starmer needs to, to keep detoxifying Labour. What else does he need to do and, and how can he further detoxify the image of Labour? Let's deconstruct the word competence. What it essentially means is that if you're to, as well, win the competence war, people have got to think that you've got the right ideas for running the country and you know how to run the country, and therefore you'll be able to put those ideas into practice. When Jeremy Corbyn uh, was party leader, the polls consistently showed that a lot of very specific Corbyn policies, like nationalising the railways, for example, were quite popular. But people didn't think that uh, that Corbyn was remotely competent. So they liked the policies, but they had had no confidence at all that he he carry them out without wrecking the economy. So you know, that, that, that's that's the task. I don't know if you're watching the current series on BBC about the battles between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, but the second one, which you, you know, is already available on iPlayer, it's not shown on BBC Two till next week, and, and it's fascinating about the build-up to the 1997 election when Tony Blair became leader of the Labour Party. What he did, both within the party and his public presentation to win over the public and to persuade the public that the Labour Party had, had changed. Remember, it was New Britain, you know, so New Labour, New Britain. And, the, and, and the, the term New Labour was to persuade people and people were persuaded. It wasn't just you know, Tony Blair being personable that he'd actually changed the party. So that's what Keir Starmer's going to do. Now, Boris Johnson, in one sense, has an easy task, in one sense, has a harder task. The easier task is that People don't draw a distinction fundamentally between him and the Tory party. So he doesn't have to close a gap between leader and party. But he does have to show that he's running the country effectively. And at the moment, you know, there's got a lot of problems, whether it's petrol, whether it's supermarket shells, gas prices going up, universal credit being cut by £20 a week. There's lots going on which might in time cause him trouble. It isn't yet. I mean, the recent polls uh, have shown the Tories maintaining a small but pretty steady lead. So yet these things don't yet seem to have, have damaged him. But he will have more of a record to go on at the next election whenever it's held. And I think he's got to demonstrate that things really are improving. So I think at the moment the, the, the jury's out on that. 
Um, yeah. Hence the reason why the Conservatives do not have a particularly high rating, in fact, have a pretty poor rating on competence. Do you think that they are worried about what's going to happen in the winter? Do you think that that, that lead, that, that poll lead that they they sort of opened up and retained, it's, I think it's five points in, in most things now. Do you, think that's, do you think that's firm or do you think it, it could wobble? Oh, I think, it's, I think it's all to play for because you know, there, are, there are two sides to this coin. On one side is government performance, on the other side is opposition reputation. The, the government is leading, and Boris Johnson is himself not very, but moderately popular. The government is not regarded as particularly competent, but it's up against an opposition that is regarded still by a great many people as uh, extreme and unelectable. So, you know, the next six months or so, the government might start solving some of these practical problems, get to grips with everything from petrol supplies to um, gas prices to having turkeys for Christmas. You and I might retrain as HGV drivers. I think I may be just a tad too old, but I, I'll keep the thoughts open. Um, but the other side of that, that, that coin is can Keir Starmer detoxify Labour? You see, I think if Starmer can detoxify Labour, then I think the Tories will be in for a real scrap at the next election. I don't mean that the Labour Party will be on course for a big outright uh, majority on its own. I think that would be incredibly difficult. But I can well see an election in which the Tories uh, lose enough seats so they can't carry on uh, governing or not carry on governing easily. But that depends on the Labour Party being more acceptable to more people than it is today. And it also um, means that the Conservatives are unable to claw back the reputation they used to have of being competent. You know, it used to be said that people people voted for the Tories because they were bastards, hard-hearted bastards, but they knew how to run things, whereas they thought Labour, they loved Labour's values and policies, but they didn't think Labour could run a wealth store. And that's why you come back to the issue of competence. In the end, competence is the necessary ingredient in an election victory. It's no good being loved if people don't think you're up to the job. And at the moment, precisely because the Tories a two to one down on competence, maybe it's three to one down on competence. You know, one could see this going quite massively in either direction, depending on how the two parties do in the next year or two. Well, we've got, I mean, we've got quite a way to, to go yet, haven't we, till May 2024, um, if it, if we do go that long. Just, just before I let you go, I mean, obviously we have seen last year, in, in last November in, in America, we saw a battle between, you know, somebody who, a leader who was incredibly charismatic and a leader who perhaps was less charismatic. That was won by the less charismatic leader. Are there any precedents for, in, in British politics or, or European politics for, for a, a less charismatic leader like Keir Starmer managing to overcome a, a really charismatic leader, uh, no matter what you might think of him, like Boris Johnson? There is one massive example which was before even I was born. And that was the 1945 election, just after the end of the same war. In fact, the war was against in Japan, so going on after Germany had been defeated. Winston Churchill, the war leader, up against Clement Attlee, the leader of the Labour Party. Uh, Churchill's personal ratings were through the roof, far higher than anything Boris Johnson has ever uh, had. And Clement Attlee was, was, as I think Churchill himself said about Attlee, a quiet man with much to, a modest man with much to be modest about. But Clement Attlee won. Labour won by a landslide because 
Labour was in tune with the wishes of the people who'd fought the war about the kind of society they wanted after the war. The Conservatives, despite Churchill's pistol popularity, seemed to be just behind the times. So they hadn't learnt from the horrors and the slump of the 1930s. So that's an absolutely enormous example that a, a well-disciplined, practical, respected party can always trump a, a charismatic leader if the charismatic leader's party is thought to be out of touch. Well, we're going to see over the next couple of years. Will it? I mean, will Boris Johnson even uh, even be there by May uh, 2024? We're going to keep in touch with you in that time. Thank you so much to Peter Kellner. You can read him on Labour and the Tories in the latest issue of The New European. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Steve. Enjoy that. And finally, as ever, it's the Hall of Shame. It's our home for putrid politicians, pompous pundits, Things that just annoy me generally. And one of the things that annoys me generally is Nadine Doris. And she returns to the Hall of Shame now at the Tory conference. The Culture Secretary, and what a scandal that title is, called the BBC elitish and snobbish. Elitist and snobbish. Yet 61% of all BBC staff attended a state-run or state-funded school. And I'll tell you what is elitist and snobbish. 60% of the cabinet Nadine Doris is in went to private school. 47% of the cabinet went to either Oxford or Cambridge. Nadine Doris also said the BBC was built on nepotism. She said it was staffed by people whose mums and dads worked there. And as you probably know, Nadine Doris employed two of her daughters as her parliamentary assistants at a cost to the public of £80,000. Nepotism and uh, staffed by people whose mums and dads worked there. And Nadine Doris said the BBC might not exist in 10 years. Well, let's make a bet. What's going to be gone in 10 years? Is it going to be the BBC? Is it going to be Nadine Doris as Culture Secretary of the United Kingdom? Or, thanks to Brexiteers like Nadine Doris, will it even be the United Kingdom itself? Alack, agad, harumph. It's Anne Widdicombe Corner, the magical time of the week when I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the ridiculous Daily Express. And Anne writes this week, about James Bond. If I hear any more screeching feminists wailing that James Bond films promote toxic masculinity, I shall turn Blofeld's cat on them. Imagine a world run by them. I would prefer world domination by Dr. No. What an interesting uh, turn of phrase there it is, because as James Bond fanatics will know, Dr. No made his fortune from harvesting and selling guano. I wonder, can anyone think of someone else who's made a lot of money from harvesting pure excrement and then serving it up to people, perhaps in a weekly column in the Daily Express? But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Dominic Raab. And you might remember that a few weeks ago I said the most stupid thing Dominic Raab had ever said was when he was Brexit Secretary, and he said this. I hadn't quite understood the full extent of this, but if you look at the UK and you look at how we trade in goods, we are particularly reliant on the Dover-Calais crossing. And then I apologised for that because Dominic Raab then said something even more stupid when he said this about Afghanistan. I want to be clear to all those service people who lost their lives that it was not in vain. And then I apologise for that because 
Dominic Robb then said something even more stupid when he said this about whether he'd been paddleboarding on his holiday while Kabul fell. The stuff about me paddleboarding? Nonsense. The sea was actually closed. And now I've got to apologise again because Dominic Robb has said something even more stupid when he said this about misogyny. Misogyny is absolutely wrong, whether it's a man against a woman or a woman against a man. What's even more stupid than that? I've got a feeling we'll soon find out. In the meantime... Here's something that's really stupid. Dominic Raab is not only Deputy Prime Minister, he's the Justice Secretary and he's also Lord Chancellor. Three jobs, one idiot. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Angleson. Thanks to my guest, Peter Kellner, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks, as always, to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcast come out every Friday. If you enjoyed this one, why not subscribe and rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice? If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, please check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, visit our new website and join us by subscribing, theneweuropean.com co.uk slash subscribe that's where you should go on social media join our facebook readers group you can follow the new european on twitter at the new european and follow me on twitter at sanglesey s-a-n-g-l-e-s-e-y until the next time we meet so long snowflakes Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.